we continue in our time now in Luke, we find ourselves right in the middle of most important week in history. Right in the middle of the week that culminates climax of redemptive history for us, of Jesus' obedience all the way to the cross. And so we find ourselves in a really important time in history. At the same time, we find ourselves in an important week in the calendar year of the people of Israel. As you know by now, <clears throat> this week is Passover week in Israel. So it's the, the holy week. It is the passion of Jesus Christ, all of this converging, and it's converging in Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jerusalem, he's entering the same time that all sorts of people from around are descending into this city for Passover week. Hundreds of thousands of people traveling, converging on the city. And as Jesus now approaches, we've seen that anticipation for Jesus has been building. We saw that in his journey through Jerusalem, to Jerusalem as he would pass through the different towns and people are anticipating him getting there. And when he enters Jerusalem, he does not do so quietly. He doesn't just slip in. Jesus comes and his presence is immediately felt as he begins to take on the, 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 the money-grabbing, wealth-building, power-hungry religious structure of the day centered there in Jerusalem in their most important week when their power would be on display and they would be making all kinds of wealth. So that is where our text picks up in verse This is 37 and 38 of chapter 21. We see Jesus continuing in his routine. Every day he was teaching in the temple. At night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. He's becoming the main attraction in this Passover week. And then we come to this text, which is the betrayal or the plot to betray Jesus Christ. What I want to do this morning is is look at kind of the three major um, players in this plot to betray Jesus Christ, and then I want to look at Jesus Christ himself and how those stand in opposition or juxtaposition to one another. Most of you are probably familiar, if you're familiar at all with the gospel story, with the betrayer, that is Judas. So you are probably familiar with that name. This morning I want to look at the three kind of people involved, the three groups involved anyways, in at least the plot that we see here that Luke is highlighting. He's highlighting them to us for a reason. First is the religious leaders. But we'll look at them once again. Then we'll look at Judas. And then we'll look at Satan. We see these three as they emerge in this plot to kill Jesus. So first, the religious leaders. By now, we've traced it, and we've hit it again and again. It keeps coming up, but it's the context for almost all of of Luke's teaching here lately. And so we want to remind ourselves one more time of the, the hardened resolve of the religious leaders almost across the board of shutting down, of getting rid of Jesus. It started with them 
the moment his public ministry began. If you remember his temptation in the wilderness, he has this baptism by John the Baptist. Holy Spirit comes upon him to empower him for his public ministry. Chapter 4 begins, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. That had become his custom, he enters the synagogue, he preaches, he opens up Isaiah and declares in there that he is the anointed one begins to declare the character of the kingdom and what that is going to look like. And it stands in, it blows the religious leaders' minds. They can't stand it. It ends, if you remember that scene, ends with them chasing him through town so they can throw him off a cliff and kill him. He's delivered in that moment. And then his ministry begins and really takes off from that point in sort of this context. You see it again throughout Luke in chapter 6 and chapter 11. In different places it's highlighted where Jesus goes hard at the hypocrisy and the judgmental nature of the religious leaders and how that stands in direct opposition to the nature of the kingdom and what he's come to offer. The kingdom is drawing near and how their acting stands in total opposition with their hypocrisy. If you remember the way that, that he frames hypocrisy, it's not calling sin, sin, but still struggling with sin. That's all of us. What it is is calling sin, sin in someone else and treasuring it yourself. It's holding someone else to a standard that you never hold yourself to. And the religious leaders are that in the way they are treating the people. When we come then to chapter um, 19, as Jesus would enter into Jerusalem and he would cleanse the temple, we're really seeing it crescendo. That was a powerful message, if you remember Pastor Adam's sermon there in chapter 19, with, as they, they threw over the tables and drove out the money changers and, and, and the uh, people selling the sacrifices. And again, to remember the setting, it's not like me throwing over this one table this morning. It, it would be just thousands and hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people gathered together in and, and Jesus in the middle of it all creating this scene and somehow all the attention turns to him. And what they're doing there, the accusations that they are selling access to God. They have so manipulated the law that they are now selling access to God. It continues then in these parables that are very pointed, and they, on the, par- the religious leaders understand they are aimed squarely at, at them as Jesus talks. And then in chapter 21, as we've covered the last couple of weeks, then this call, this um, prophetic word of coming destruction for Jerusalem in a coming day of redemption or a day of terror when the Son of Man returns. Judgment growing out of the evils, the abuse of these religious leaders. And so, Jesus continues to teach. People are all around Him, and the Pharisees, the leaders, are stuck in this problem. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Him to death, for they feared the people. 
the, the more popular, the more influence Jesus is having, the more he is going to be protected by these people who are latching on to his message. They, they feel the abuse of the religious leaders. There's nothing they can do. It. They're hearing Jesus, and there seems to be this growing swell for him in some sense. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, they want to shut him down. And we'll see in a moment then they find a willing partner in Judas and they are more than excited to commission and pay him in this plot. I Just one question then before we move to our second group. I think we have to ask it. I know for myself, Pastor Adam, Adam Cronebush, those who are in leadership positions of others who would have some spiritual influence and guidance, is how do you go from being called of God, set apart to lead the people of God in the worship of God, to be equipped for that? How do you go from that to plotting to murder the Son of God? How does it get there? I think as you look back over and just review in your mind and think back over that the answer is simple. It's a bit twofold. You begin to reject the Word of God, for one. You just, you reject the Word of God. (laughs) You hear it and you manipulate it. And secondly, God becomes then your tool or your servant to advance your cause instead of you becoming the servant to advance the cause of God. It seems out there, how could this possibly ever happen? How does it go from being set aside to lead people in worship to then falling to this kind of great sin? And I would just say, you don't have to look very far to see. It happens in evangelical circles all the time. It happens a lot in the circles that we run in as a, an evangelical, non-denominational, gospel coalition type of church. Of, of men who the Lord blesses and uses in a unique way and you see churches explode with people and they're having influence and great ministry. And then arises the young church planters, pastors. I, I probably put myself on the tail end of young, I guess. And, and you see this, and it's the model. It becomes how do, not how do I serve the Lord and see fruit like that. It's, it's how do I become that person? <laughs> you know, I want that ministry. I want that sort of influence. And it's not all evil intention, but that sort of becomes what you're thinking and you're hoping for and you're looking for. And then, you know, the more you want that, then that person, he gets to write some books. And as he writes books, it becomes more popular. And, and again, people who have influence, it's not like they're all bad. I'm, I'm not saying that. But then you come out and you see this devastating sin that takes place in these folks' lives. And the reason I go there is not to try to broad brush paint everyone in that category, but it's because I want to look inwardly because I see and I know and I experience the temptation of using God to advance me. As a pastor, as a leader, that's a, 
a struggle because you want to be, you fall into this weird competitive nature with other churches or you want to be thought highly of by your peers or you want to be, you know, the guys you knew from seminary, you'd love for them to all of a sudden see, oh man, he wrote a book or whatever it might be. And so you're focused on serving the Lord and then you start to get, and you have to battle it. I'm, I'm by no means above it. Pastor Adam might be, but I am not above that. As you lead the people of God, the spiritual warfare is real. You stand looking to protect and to guard and to feed the sheep that God has entrusted to you. And you're accountable for the souls of them. And yet at the same time, you're by no means a superman who's kind of some spiritual elite immune to these temptations. And so I would say for the first, I would just encourage you to pray for me, pray for Adam, pray for Adam. That we would be humble and God would take what is necessary to keep us humbly serving him. That as we pray for fruitfulness and we see growth and we're encouraged by it, that it wouldn't become self-serving. Because it does not take that long before you get this shift of mind And you never would necessarily even acknowledge it yourself, but you go from serving God to how does God serve my agenda, serve my brand, serve me. That's how, I mean, it's reached a really high peak with them, obviously, as they look to murder Jesus. But it went from how do I take the law and, and how do I minister to the people of God and offer them what God is offering them in this sort of mediatorial work. And instead they've taken how do I use God and the law to manipulate these people and to gain wealth and power and success. So I encourage you, pray for us. We would be watchful. We would be watchful for ourselves. We would be humble. We would receive from you the encouragement and instruction that we would try to offer back. Realize the spiritual warfare is high. Then the second participants, and we'll kind of cover these two together because it's hard to separate them, but that would be Judas and Satan. As you look in verses 3, we'll read 3 through 6, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. I don't know about you, when I read it, I immediately have a first question that feels like we need to answer this question. And what does it mean that Satan entered Judas? What exactly is, is this working together, that, or what is taking place here? Is, is Satan kind of overwhelming an innocent man here, and, and Judas is just becoming somewhat of an unwilling partner in this terrible plot against Jesus? Is Satan invading? Could Judas, you know, rightfully say, Satan made me do it. The devil made me do it. I think we can answer that fairly easily, historically with Judas, and then I want to answer it um, theologically for ourselves. Historically, with, with Judas, you see in John 
chapter 12. John would be covering the same, um, or John is covering in that episode, the, if you remember, Mary comes and she brings her perfume and everyone is around and she doesn't have much to offer, but she has this expensive perfume and she pours it on the feet of Jesus as this act of worship to Jesus. And the disciples are standing around, and Judas immediately kind of corrects her. And why are you being so wasteful with that? Framing it in the idea of there's so much good, there's so much generosity we could do with this ointment, this perfume. And John makes this comment in chapter 12, verse 6. It says, Judas, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself. He, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas isn't this innocent, righteous follower of Christ. He's a, a thieving, lying lover of money. That's the picture that we have painted of Judas. And so we see that Satan then is wielding influence in the life of Judas, in a heart and mind that is already has alternative idols and worships something different than Jesus Christ, one who is faithless and unrepentant. Satan comes in and he wields that influence. So Luke uses similar language, I think, that kind of helps us. In Acts chapter 5, um, you remember in Acts chapter 5, Luke, again, writing, is, is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember the, these two who sold some property, sold some land, and they came to bring the finances that they made from the sale to the Lord. And so they brought a portion of it to offer to the Lord. But when they come, they make a big scene and say that they everything that they have, they are giving it, and they lie to make themselves look better. And the Lord judges them severely. But in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Luke recording what Peter says. It says, and Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? It has a a filling your heart, laying hold, grasping your heart, that that Satan would lay hold of the heart and, and see the passions and wield influence in a man who is pursuing sin and pursuing enjoyment already and just really take control and push and energize and urge those passions along. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses one through three. You were dead in the trespasses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The, trans, the thought goes, you're dead in your sin, you're pursuing your own passions, hence you are following and you are being energized by the domain of darkness and the leader of that domain, Satan. I say that because it's not like, yes, Satan has, seems to have amped up his attack <laughs> on the kingdom of light in this moment, and we'll look at that. But it's not as if Satan, you know, it's a one-time event where he tried to influence Judas 
to destroy the plans and the works of, of God. He's at work in unbelieving and unrepentant hearts to influence, to get you to give yourself to the domain of darkness and to follow its pursuits and its pleasures. First John 5.19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So again, <clears throat> i got to ask the question. How did Judas, someone who had the rarest of privileges, 11 others, to live and walk and be so close to God in the flesh, to hear his teaching, to sit with him, to eat with him, to be around him, and to be part of that inner circle called of God to be one of the 12 disciples. How does Judas go from that to totally betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I think it is simple. It's just unconfessed sin. You would think Judas had every chance to confess his sin before the Lord, to repent and to confess his thievery, his dishonesty. And yet he never did. That's the tragedy of it. He never turned to the Lord for mercy and grace. Instead, this love of money laid hold of his heart and totally captured him so that he became lying and manipulative even in his charity work in order to advance his own cause. And then lying and manipulative all the way to the point that he's willing to sell out Jesus Christ for a little profit. What is the difference between you know, a little sin and apostasy? I think it's time. Time and unconfessed sin. Something little, a respectable sin. There's a book we went through in our CLG oh, a couple years ago now probably. Respectable sins. Something small, something that doesn't seem that big a deal. And, and whatever, it just goes unchecked. And then it begins to have a bigger stronghold, but you just still don't confess it because you enjoy it. That sort of sin lays hold of the heart. As Hebrews would say, the one who knows knows and continues on in their sin, no longer remains forgiveness, a sacrifice of sin for him. You can't be a follower of Christ Live and treasure deep sin and never, ever try to deal with it. Never confess and turn and repent away from it. I think this hits us squarely with a couple applications. I think pornography works this way in people's lives. As a, you know, you give yourself for a moment to something and it's, you know, at least it's not like real. It's not like I'm engaging with someone actual. And you give a little room for it, and it begins to grow and grow and grow and take hold of your heart. 
not only does it, you know, serve the culture of abuse and sex trafficking and all of that, but it also stunts you from growing and maturing. It stunts you from being able to love your wife or love those around you as you should. It prohibits you from understanding the love of the gospel that's proclaimed in Ephesians 5. We're we're supposed to be reflecting husband to wife, wife to husband, and declaring through the way we sacrificially love and give ourselves to one another is a declaration of the gospel to others. And that lays hold and takes your, your heart and what seems like Oh, a little moment of weakness, unconfessed, unrepentant, it becomes an idol, and it turns into apostasy. Covetousness, that is what's being dealt with here. A love of money that begins to take control, uh, uh, this desire and love and need for advancing your place of covetousness, to, to have more than you have, to be discontent with what the Lord has given you, to despise His providence in your life because you want something else. And this covetousness can lay hold. It's the, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. The Lord returns to it in Luke in, in chapter uh, 12 or 13 when he's with the rich young ruler and the application is don't give your heart to covetousness or you can't enter the kingdom. You look at Judas, it seems overwhelming and yet we're people who have such access to Jesus. We can draw near to him in prayer, in his word, all the time. And yet it doesn't take long for a little sin that you don't want to deal with because you love it and you want to treasure it to grow and take over your heart. And you think, okay, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Are you going to look and trample underfoot the cross of Christ for a little 10-minute video? Is that a different? We all struggle with sin. We're always going to struggle with it. The battle is that you stay in the battle. That you're repentant. That you would pray that the Lord would give you a distaste for it. That as your heart ebbs and flows, that you would, by the Spirit, work to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that is an ongoing effort, and it's a community effort. There's things you're struggling and locked in, You need to find help, someone who can graciously understand we're in a battle and come alongside you and help you in that battle. Satan, then, we see here his final attempt to defeat the king. It's what John Piper, there's like a thick kind of booklet track that I think he calls it the world's most spectacular sin. He says everything better than I'm going to say it, so I'll just steal that line anyways. That Satan now, in all of his plotting and all of his looking to overthrow Jesus, is now plotting to kill, to murder Jesus. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, beginning there of redemptive history, the promise that the serpent will come and bruise the heel of the son of Eve, the second Adam, if you will, Jesus Christ. And here's where the juxtaposition is so victorious for us. 
in that bruising the heel, Satan is getting his skull crushed. His greatest scheming, his greatest plotting to come and finally ensnare, finally end this work of Jesus, is falls totally in line with the purpose and the plan of Jesus to a plan of God to accomplish salvation for us through Jesus Christ. He's looking to kill, to murder Jesus, who is about ready to become our Passover lamb. You see, as as these flood in, the, the work, the sin of man, and yet God's infinite sovereign goodness and providence in knowing and using even the most sinful acts of men to sovereignly accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> it's interesting. You can read about, well, we see that this is prophesied, that, that Jesus would be betrayed by someone close to him. In Psalm 41, David in that psalm is talking about uh, being pursued. He's, he's praying that the Lord would give him relief from, i got to see the name, Ahithophel. I can never remember that name in my head. Ahithophel. If you remember, Ahithophel was an advisor of David. They were close. They were friends. When Absalom moves away and stands against David, Ahithophel rejects David, becomes a, a traitor, betrays David, follows after Absalom and plots about, I know when David's going to be at his weakest. Let's get him then. This you can either flip over to Psalm 41 or just listen. I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 41. But David cries out, beginning in verse 5. He says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again where he lies. Verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That idea of lifting his heel against me, that would be someone who's in desperate need and they're kind of come crawling towards you for help and you give them the old boom. No. In his most desperate need, he comes crawling and he rejects them outright. John, John chapter 13, as he would be covering the same um, text here as Luke is with his betrayal. Uh, Flip over there again, you can just listen. But as Jesus now takes this word of David and this struggle that David had with the king, with Ahithophel, and now applies it and shows them that was just a shadow of what is taking place in order Scripture to be fulfilled in my life. Beginning of chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God. And so it continues through there. And then we come to verse 18. And we know that Jesus understands. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There seats Judas, already partake of the bread, cup. 
Jesus sees, he understands, he knows what's happening. He knows this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53, we see it, that it pleased the Father to bruise, to kill the Son. Acts 4 brings all of those together for us, probably the most clearly. In Acts 4, verse 24 to 28, it says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all of these people, in order to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see how the worst plotting, the worst scheming, the the most spectacular crime and sin in human history pushed Jesus to the cross, finally and fully accomplishing victory for us. The Passover lamb offered for us. His plan, His purpose prevails not in spite, but sovereignly in the midst of and over top of all sin. He will accomplish His purpose and plan. His final victory has been sealed as the Passover lamb. And then we just see the end of this passage that assures us of this truth. There's then all of this sort of detail about where they're going to continue their time together for the Passover. Verse 7 of chapter 22 in Luke says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to him, And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. They go out and they find it and they prepare for the Passover. It's this almost like secretive, real tricky type of way that Jesus shows them where to go. We see, I think, in these providential and divine instructions and planning of of the Lord that he knows exactly what's coming. And yet he is not going to surrender himself to the cross a moment before the time is ready. When the Passover lamb has come, when that time has come for the Passover lamb to be offered, he will gladly lay down his life. But he's not being taken before that. He's going to sit down and he's going to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread, this Passover meal. He's going to institute for us the Lord's Supper. He is going to instruct what it means for him to be the Passover lamb. And so it seems to be that a lot of commentators would agree that he gives these instructions to kind of keep Judas and the others in the dark of where they're even going so that Judas can't plot his immediate betrayal. So that he only would tell a couple of his disciples, and even they don't know where, until they're in that room, they don't know what room it's in. And so Judas is unable to 
you know, get with his cohorts to get this scheme together of capturing Jesus when no one is around quite yet. Which provides Jesus the opportunity to tell them, I know what's coming. In John, it says that he tells them that he knows what's coming in order that when it comes, they'll believe that he's the Son of Man. For Jesus to instruct us in the table. For Jesus to be our true Passover lamb. In this plot to kill Jesus, I just want to leave us with three comments. And then we'll transition perfectly as we think about our Passover lamb to celebrating the table and what that means for us. First, as we look at the religious leaders, as we look at Judas, I would just encourage us once again with the seriousness of sin and the spiritual warfare that's taking place. That when you give room for sin, you begin to work against the very purposes of God. That the differences between just a little agreeable sin and apostasy is time and unrepentance. We pray weekly God would grant you, that God would grant us faith and unrepentance. Uh, faith and repentance. <laughs> God would grant us faith and repentance. Not as if we're constantly standing in jeopardy, but that he would continue in his grace to lavish that grace and goodness upon us. That we would see sin, not make room for it, but put it to death. And then that we would rest in and rejoice in our Passover lamb. There's no plan of man that's going to overcome it or stop the purposes of God. As we celebrate this meal together, might it be a time that we are examining ourselves, resting and rejoicing in the work of Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it instructs us. Lord, we see these characters emerge and we know these stories and sometimes they just become that to us, kind of characters in a story and yet we know their reality, their historical humanity, that they wrestle with the same human emotions and temptations that that we often wrestle with. Might we learn, Lord, that sin is serious and it can lead not just to a couple little bad decisions, but it can lead to betraying Jesus to pursue a different idol. It can lead to using God to advance our cause instead of us humbly advancing the cause of Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his purpose and intention to be the Passover lamb. Not that he got caught up and he got trapped and he got snared. Lord, but the scheming and plotting of man did nothing except to serve the purposes of God. Even Satan's greatest attempt to destroy Jesus sealed his own doom, for in bruising the heel, he assured that his head would be crushed by the Savior. Lord, we await that day when you put away those final sin and darkness, rule your kingdom in perfect light. Until that day, might we gladly and cheerfully and faithfully guard the deposit that you have left us, your gospel. I'll invite the worship team if they come up at this time.